Welcome to the Dividend Cafe weekly market commentary focused on dividends in your portfolio and dividends in your understanding of economic life. Hello, welcome to today's COVID and Markets Missive brought to you by the Dividend Cafe of the Bonson Group. This is David Bonson, the Chief Investment Officer at the Bonson Group. It's Tuesday, June the 2nd, and we're giving you our daily missive. And it's another day of, um, I think, a lot of people just perplexed at the market bullishness, market uh, forward movement. And uh, we're not perplexed by it here at the Bonson Group. It, we we um, It's surprising in the sense of normal intuitions about headlines and about news events. But in terms of how markets work and what markets are actually doing mathematically and economically, um, despite the the really uh, severe distress of the headlines and the TV screens, it, it, it actually is not a surprise that markets are somewhat divorced from that activity. Um, so last night I went to bed and literally all that was on the TV was more Coverage of property destruction and and vehicular attacks on police and you know all the different things that we're all seeing on our TV images, and yet uh, futures were up about two hundred points, and and uh, when when I when I woke up this morning that is futures were up about two hundred points, they stayed up throughout the day as the market was open not necessarily that much all day but then in the final hour it rallied and closed at the high of the day up two hundred and seventy points and so. You know, we're getting even closer to that 26,000 mark in the Dow. And uh, all this is happening behind the backdrop of the things I've been talking about, which is in the very short term, the market's responding to uh, the juxtaposition of improved health data with improved economic data expectations as the economy reopens and, and phases into its reopening with the ongoing uh, thus far um, benign health environment uh, relative to expectations. And, and I'm going to share some of that data with you momentarily. Second issue with markets is the uh, monetary stimulus having worked its way through credit markets, brought in high yield and investment grade credit spreads, brought in mortgage spreads, and and provided a lot of liquidity into the system that works its way into risk assets, provides a kind of lubricated capital markets in, that uh, that allows people to search for their most uh, rational and optimistic, or excuse me, opportunistic use of capital in in a time when interest rates are at zero percent. And then that third is the Tina. There's an alternative. Um, the, another way to put this is a none of the above market where international or or uh, fixed income or credit or cash in particular uh, just simply don't cut it for, for what a lot of investors, both institutional and retail, are looking for. So um, I, I'm going to keep saying it because it's important and I do think it's my job. But uh, forgive me if you're tired of hearing it. It's just that I think the repetition will be important as we go through the various things we're going to go through in the days, weeks, and months, and quarters ahead. Um, we may very well be at the higher end of a short-term trading range. It would be impossible for anyone with any authority to state that, but that certainly seems like a reasonable expectation to me. But nevertheless, um, we would anticipate that there will be some grind through the economic recovery. We do believe there will be an economic recovery. 
we hope it will be on the more optimistic end of, of speed and magnitude, but we do not know. And so in that second phase, this quote-unquote grind, we think things will will require a bit of patience and work. And in the meantime, uh, there's really not much the market can do that's going to surprise us because markets are in the surprise business. And you can't be surprised when you expect a surprise. Think about that one for a little bit. Let's talk health data. Case growth was, again, just over 1% yesterday. Now, absolute case growth was not declining and, and I woke up at 3.15 this morning to a report of over 20,000 cases yesterday. That's been about the level we've been at. So, you know, it's, you're just kind of tired of seeing that 20,000 number. You'd like to see that get even lower. But as I looked under the hood this morning, I found out that there were about 3,000 cases that Massachusetts added to the data in one day based on probable data, which they did not define, going all the way back to March 1st. So really, apart from this data dump in a single day from the state of Massachusetts, we actually were at about 17,000 case growth yesterday. So the death data and case data that Massachusetts recorded was based on those who they believe probably died from COVID and probably had or have COVID. And I am not really clear on what the criteria is for a probable classification when a test itself was done, um, in the death cases, a lot of times the test wasn't done and they go to symptoms. But when they do a test that gives either a positive or negative and then have a probable classification, I confess to being a bit confused what that means. So again, case growth about 17,000 when adjusted for the data dump in Massachusetts yesterday. But regardless, I'm increasingly convinced that even with case growth being stubborn up and around that 20,000 level, it's not bothering markets because that flatlined absolute number does represent a smaller and smaller percentage as testing continues to increase, but also because the recovered rate is advancing at a higher pace. The delay in classifying a case as recovered is leaving the active cases artificially high. Um, I'll give you an example of some language that appears on some of the actual tracking websites that I periodically review. I'm quoting here, while every case of the new coronavirus that causes COVID-19 is reported to HCA, there is no practical way to find out if they've recovered. So I've been wondering for months how they go about tracking the recovered, and then I look at official data tracking saying there isn't a way to notify. So I suspect, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but I think this is a reasonable conclusion that you have a very artificially high active case number and a very artificially low recovered case number. Um, it was early on in my kind of tracking of all this that I sort of determined that it wasn't just that there were people recovering that it wasn't getting tracked that way, but that in fact, a lot of the positive cases that were coming back because it early on, you recall, we were so behind in testing and so selective about who, we're, who we were testing and it was taking so long to get testing results that uh, my little theory was that there were a significant amount of people who had recovered by the time they got their positive test. It was actually overlapping from the positive tracking to the recovery, that the recovery in some cases was coming before the positive had come. And that was based on just several people I, I literally knew that that had been the case for, and I just found it hard to believe that I only knew outliers. 
But nevertheless, I, I think that, you know, the society has determined, policymakers, um, maybe not the media, that's a bit different of a story, but I think the market, I think just kind of rational actors have more or less said that based on, on all the different factors out there, the one they seem to be looking to do the most is death declines, serious case declines, hospitalization capacity, PPE capacity, things of that nature. And all those things have moved in a positive direction, thank God. We hope they will continue to do so. Um, okay, in terms of today's results, we got another 400,000 tests done today with a positivity rate of 5.4%. Remarkable consistency in the numbers right now on a day-by-day basis, just sitting pretty much right at 400,000 tests a day with a positive rate of those tests coming in at about 5% or so, and uh, then a very, very low and, in fact, declining percentage of severe cases. I did do a little Sweden update. There's a chart at covidandmarkets.com today. Just because their average daily death count has declined by half now since late April, um, even as they've largely kept their economy open throughout. Uh, let's be clear that them keeping the economy open is a reference to the governmental mandates that in this case largely did not exist. It is not a reference to the free actions of their free society. A significant amount of their population obviously chose to sort of shelter in place. And, and so no one is suggesting, I don't think, that Sweden was literally out uh, spreading around with each other. I I think that it was just simply that they left it more up to the population, and we'll have to see kind of what that looks like versus the way other countries handled it over time. Um, The final analysis of the data will require a relative comparison to the economic damage done in other countries versus their own economic damage. But in the meantime, the health and mortality data and stuff is still a work in progress. The country I'd look to right now, just to, if one wants a very optimistic model of things, it would have to be Japan. I mean, I don't think I've used this language yet to say that a country has actually essentially beaten Japan. I think the um, mission accomplished moment, uh, for those of you who recall, George W. Bush um, has caused a lot of people to maybe hold back on some of the would-be victory claims. And and I've always felt the same, even with the way I talk about markets and certain investment things. Um, Nothing nothing worse than a victory lap before you finish the race. But for me to say this, um, you know, there's data behind it. Over 90% of the total cases they ever had are now fully recovered. Right now, the country has 127 million people. They have 115 cases that are classified as serious. 115 serious cases out of a population of 127 million people. So yeah, I think I think that the world can celebrate that Japan has essentially beaten COVID-19. From a market technical standpoint here in the States, um, look, the Russell 2000, the prominent small cap index, is now up over 40% since its March low. That's the second biggest percentage gain in a 50-day period in history. Uh, first would have been the 2009 the market bottom and the rally that came off of that. Over 90% of small cap stocks are above their 50-day moving average. And I would add that $1.5 billion came out of small cap ETFs last month. So this is not flow-driven. This is contrarian-friendly, which I love. Um, on a volume front, I, I make the comment here in COVID Markets with another chart that, you know, those looking for something to try to talk down, they could point to the fact that in the very recent part of 
market recovery, the volume in the S&Ps has been lower than normal. Uh, it's a pretty flawed argument, but I'm just trying to cover all my bases. Okay, public policy, Senator McConnell has indeed verified the Senate is set to approve the House adjustments to PPP that will add that flexibility to guidelines for getting loan forgiveness. As far as the bigger picture, Stimulus 4.0, McConnell had sort of made reference to uh, late June timeframe. Secretary Mnuchin, President Trump had had referenced something happening in mid to late June. Uh, Senator John Thune is a senior GOP senator of South Dakota, has indicated today, for whatever it's worth, he's actually thinking it's going to be into July before they have another bill. So we're watching that timeline and, again, just expecting it to be not imminent, but not um, all the way through summer at some point, you know, mid-summer-ish. Oil closed today, WTI crude at $37, another 4.5% higher. Uh, you got to figure some U.S. shale companies are, ble- are, are pleasantly surprised to see that Saudi's central bank was pumping $13 billion into its banks to protect against damage to their economy with the collapsing oil market conditions of the last couple months. A wave of debt restructurings uh, are certainly likely there. And um, so to the extent that, you know, U.S. shale has had to deal with some of the same, uh, perhaps uh, Misery Loves Company, I don't know. Um, a lot does appear to be riding in the in headline risk around Russia's agreement to this next batch of OPEC plus production cuts. But it would feel to me that based on oil price action as of late that somebody knows or believes something about uh, fait accompli with that deal. Of course, you know, we'll have to see. As for housing, and this really could be discussed in my Fed comments, um, prepayments on 30-year Fannie mortgages in April were up 26% year over year. They were up 42% in March. So this obviously encapsulates that borrowers are refinancing mortgages to lower rates. It has nothing to do with paying mortgages off. That prepayment risk affects investors in the mortgage-backed securities because then these mortgage pools get principal back prematurely, and then they have reinvestment risk around lower rates because that's the whole issue going on with the rates being lower. Um, It is reported that Fed purchases were only $101 million in May after $295 billion of purchases in April. So essentially just, you know, a year or two's worth of of mortgage-backed security purchases in April followed by virtually nothing in the month of May. And I basically suspected there wasn't the need to support the mortgage market in May, that they really liquefied the space um, with their bazooka in March and April. What we know is that mortgage markets are dependent right now on Fannie and Freddie. And then we know that Fannie and Freddie have become dependent on the Fed, at least as far as uh, smooth or optimal functioning of the bond pool markets, the the Fannie and Freddie uh, world. Um, Where things go with rates, prepayments, and overall mortgage conditions in the months to come will indeed have a profound effect on the overall housing sector. I don't even like this call. I don't even like uh, calling this next section Fed News. Um, but look, this is so interesting. The Fed invested nearly $1.5 billion, as I covered yesterday, in bond ETFs last month. Their direct purchases of exchange traded funds and fixed income last month, very good portion of that going into junk bonds, high yield. 
Now, we also know that investors directly poured $4.3 billion into one junk bond ETF alone and another $10 billion into various other bond ETFs that the Fed was buying. So that's $14 billion of retail bond ETF purchases. Pretty much the most classic case of front-running the Fed, I can imagine. Very predictable. But it actually shows me investors learned from the lesson of the financial crisis. When the Fed tells you what they're going to buy, go buy it first. Uh, as far as central bank news, we do expect that the European Central Bank will be expanding its bond buying program another 500 billion euros worth of quantitative easing this Thursday morning. They'll be making that announcement. Quick economic sidebar, and I'll let you go. Six of the 18 sub-industries in the ISM manufacturing number actually reflected positive growth in May. Overall, manufacturing obviously was still in contraction mode in the month of May, not as much as it had been in April. Durable goods orders in particular are still very soft. But inside baseball, the report was less bad than I had anticipated, and I actually have read now two reports uh, from analysts I respect forecasting ISM manufacturing back in positive territory, meaning net-net expansion versus net-net contraction by the end of the year, which would be really phenomenal. Okay, go to covidmarkets.com to get the link to my appearance on Fox Business today, talking briefly with Charles Payne about free markets and, and uh, what the pretense of this market rally really means. Uh, I'm going to leave it there for today's COVID and Markets. I look forward to coming back to you tomorrow, Wednesday. Please be well, be safe tonight, and be free. The Bonson Group is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free risk. There is no guarantee that the investment process or investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Bonson Group and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the Bonson Group and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for any related questions.